first farm we visited, we liberated the entire breeding stock. We took a pair of wire cutters to the fence, dismantled the fence, entered onto the property, went to the breeding sheds of the mink and opened every cage, 2,400 animals. You know, the idea was to do just one or two raids and then stop and continue doing this sustainably over a period of time. But the conditions I saw were so atrocious and so heartbreaking that I couldn't really stop myself. I had to keep going to these fur farms and keep liberating as many animals as possible. I wanted to really destroy this industry in the summer of 2013. What the hell is up, you guys? Today, I have a former political prisoner on the podcast. His name is Joseph Buddenberg, and he was arrested in 2016 for liberating over 6,000 minks from fur farms. He is the real deal, and he is going to share his story with all of you. He's going to talk about his time in prison. He's going to talk about how he went about liberating these animals and he's going to describe the conditions that he saw and overall he's going to give advice on how we can be more effective to end this madness of what hap what happens to the animals so please 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 go support joseph buddenberg on his patreon three dollars a month you guys if you can do more than that that would be amazing but th even three dollars goes a long way his Patreon is patreon.com slash Joseph Buddenberg, and you can check him out on social media as well. You can message him, ask him any questions. He is an inspiration. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Joseph, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, It's really such an honor to speak with you. I've been following your story for a few years now, and you're such an inspiration to so many activists in the animal rights community. So I guess the first question I'll ask you is, can you just tell everybody who are you and how do people know you? So I'm Joseph Bunberg. I'm a former political prisoner. I've been vegan for 20 years and active in the animal liberation movement for a long time. Racked up a ton of arrests, a lot of campaigns, liberated thousands of animals. I've had a long and storied activist history. Oh my God. I, I, I have chills as you're saying it. And <laughs> it's, it's amazing because you really are an activist that's doing the work. You're on the ground. You're liberating thousands of animals and putting your own freedom at risk for them. So let's backtrack to 20 years ago. So we're looking at early 2000s, barely anybody's vegan at that point. It's a very, very small number. How did you even get involved? How did you hear about veganism? What's your story with that? So my exposure to veganism sort of came through um, the like hardcore punk music community. At the time, there were a lot of bands just pushing a message of like direct action and animal liberation philosophy. And it was usually like the more militant side of animal rights, uh, bands like Earth Crisis, things like that, you know. So that was my first exposure to animal rights and sort of came from a very like militant place and so like immediately i kind of just wanted to jump right into it and um started sort of committing illegal direct action before i'd really found a vegan community or known too many activists what is the illegal direct action that you started in so illegal direct action there's a group called the animal liberation front that was formed in the 70s out of the uk and they exist to sort of liberate animals from places of abuse and cause economic damage to those who abuse animals um that comes in the form of anything from vandalism and sabotage to, uh, you know, finding out where animals are tortured and killed and uh, breaking into those places and liberating those animals. 
Wow. Wow. So how did you get involved? Did you research it? Because it is a very underground thing. Not anybody can just join the ALF. So how did you even, who was like the first person that you met? How did you get involved? Sure. So a lot of times at these shows, you would have people tabling with different sorts of animal liberation zines and publications. And, um, you know, I read everything I could on the animal rights movement and on the militant side of the animal liberation movement. And some of the stuff I was reading was like a lot about tactics, a lot of different actions that were occurring around the country and around the world. So I just sort of started as a teenager, uh, you know, like little petty vandalism and things like that. And I would claim them as AOF actions, but, uh, you know, breaking butcher shop windows, slashing tires, things like that. Anything I could do to sort of make it harder for animal abusers to operate. Incredible. And what was it about some of these images or videos that you were seeing that got you so powered up to do it? What, what did you, what were you seeing uh, abuse wise that made you go into these stores and break windows? A lot of the um, publications I was finding um, would show scenes from vivisection labs and places of abuse. And, um, you know, it was just horrific. There was the story of like Rich's baby primate that was liberated from the University of California who had had his eyes sewn shut by vivisectors, you know, just those publications would sort of highlight all the kinds of abuse that was happening to animals. And not just that, but like the urgency surrounding it. Like if, if we're not going to do anything about this, then we're almost as guilty and as complicit as the people who are doing it. So those images just really made me want to fight as hard as possible. To the point where you were willing to give up your own freedom to fight for these animals. And it's so inspirational. Let's talk a little bit about your first run-in with the law in 2009. So you're breaking these windows. Did anybody come after you for that? And then what led to your event in 2009? So in a lot of ways, I learned that illegal direct action is sometimes a lot safer than above ground campaigning. So my first AETA arrest, Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, is a federal law in the United States that um, essentially criminalizes the animal rights movement as a threat to domestic security and, you know, just protects animal abusers. So my first arrest on that came in 2009. We were the very first people charged with animal enterprise terrorism, and we were campaigning against the University of California. We were doing a lot of, like, home demonstrations at vivisectors' houses um, and sort of, like, trying to pressure the University of California to stop experimenting on primates and other animals. And um, they just really didn't like this. That first case was sort of a test case under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. Um, so I waited through the court system for about a year and a half. And eventually we put together a really strong legal team and got that case dismissed in 2010. Wow. And during this time, were you ever scared? I mean, for me, at least being an activist, I do more of the above ground campaigning and grassroots activism style. But even when the police come and show up at our events and I've been handled out of places by police officers and whatnot, and it's really scary. How did you deal with that? Um, sort of the activist culture I came out of, the, the sort of the stuff I was reading and everything I was sort of preparing myself for um, for prison. When I started down this activist path, I, I really wanted to go as hard as possible. So. I sort of started on the path knowing that one day I would get arrested and go to prison. So I did a lot of psychological preparation for, for that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a stressful thing. It's, it's, it can, it can be scary at times for sure. Yeah. And I really want to get into why you had to prep psychologically for prison and talk to my audience specifically about what you went through when you actually did go to prison. But before we get there, uh, 
why don't you talk about what led you to liberating 6,000 minks? Tell us that story from the beginning. Sure. So I, um, I think I was inspired to do that, sort of influenced to do that by my first legal case. I, I wanted to really do something that was going to have a real impact on these industries. I didn't want to just um, get in trouble or sacrifice my freedom for, for things that weren't going to have a direct impact on the lives of animals. And, you know, I had always, ever since I heard about the Animal Liberation Front, I had always wanted to participate in those actions. So after that federal case was dismissed, I took a, took a couple of years off. And then I started doing everything I could to study the fur industry and um, visiting fur farms, uh, just, just mapping out the industry, doing everything I could to destroy it. I would just visit farm after farm and I would find the same conditions on every single fur farm. Multiple mink held in tiny wire cages. They couldn't even turn around or move. Um, and that, that really broke my heart. So I wanted to do everything I could to, to destroy that industry. I made promises to those mink that I would do everything I could. Did you see other animals on the fur farm or just minks? Uh, mostly just mink. I visited some fox farms, uh, visited the bobcat farm, liberated some, some other animals as well. Mostly just looking at the mink fur industry and sort of seeing that as a very low-hanging fruit as far as animal abuse goes. Right. And I was just going to ask you why specifically fur. So can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how maybe that is kind of the first industry that's collapsing on the animal liberation scale? Sure. So so the, the fur industry is a great target for so many reasons. I mean, the public consciousness is against the fur industry, as but we have a lot more work to do against the meat industry and the vivisection industries. But as far as the fur industry, there's a lot of public opposition to it. The animals held captive by the fur industry are wild, they're genetic, uh, genetically wild, they're native to North America, they can survive outside of captivity. So it provides a lot of opportunity for activists to sort of uh, attack this industry. Right, right. So you get a group together, I'm guessing, and what was this plan? Right, so the, the first farm we visited, myself and a friend, we liberated the entire breeding stock. We took a pair of wire cutters to the fence, dismantled the fence, entered onto the property, went to the breeding sheds of the mink, and uh, opened every cage, 2,400 animals liberated into pristine wildlife habitat. And, you know, the idea was to do just one or two raids and then, you know, stop and continue doing this sustainably over a period of time. But the conditions I saw were so atrocious and so heartbreaking that I could I couldn't really stop myself. I had to keep going to these fur farms and keep liberating as many animals as possible. I wanted to really destroy this industry in the summer of 2013. So in the end, visited about nine fur farms uh, and liberated anywhere from 300 to 1,000 mink from each of those fur farms after the original uh, 2,400 were released. What happened when you cut those cages open? Did the mink just run immediately? Were they confused? Uh, they're super feral. I mean. I can't remember an instance where a mink didn't immediately run away. There was a lot of news articles that came out after these raids and mink were spotted five miles away the next morning. So, I mean, they have a, you know, it's so sad that they live in a tiny wire cage that's only inches. In the wild, they span miles of habitat. So, so yeah, they, they immediately ran away. They immediately swam. A lot of times um, there would be bodies of water directly behind the fur farm and the mink are semi-aquatic, so they would just swim away to freedom. So that kind of goes right then and there, shutting down all the critics that said, oh, well, what happens if the mink are released and they can't survive in the wild? You see right then and there that they all did. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of that fur industry propaganda that finds its way into the press is um, 
you know, you look at like the Fur Commission USA, which is like the fur industry front group that puts out a lot of this propaganda. And they sort of have talking points for the farmers to handle media. And it says things like that, like mink will die in the wild, mink can't survive outside of a cage. You know, it's all, it's all lies. Right. Of course. So a few years later, you're then caught. Talk about that. Yeah. So two years later, I was arrested uh, by the FBI on Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, facing up to 10 years in prison. Essentially, uh, federal conspiracy law is such that they don't really need much evidence against someone to, to arrest them and to convict them. Um, they just have to show an agreement and some, some overt acts. So when they had raided my co-defendant's house, they had found some fur industry literature and things like that, some incriminating pieces of literature. And they essentially cheated to get the, to get the warrant to search the house. So yeah, faced, faced up to 10 years in prison, ended up taking a plea deal for um, two years. So I served about 21 months in prison in the end. So in the Medium article that you wrote, you started describing some of the conditions and you started describing when you first arrived there, being in solitary confinement. Um, yeah, prison, prison was rough. It's not really something you can effectively prepare for. It takes a lot of strength to endure. I found that in prison, the inmates were generally like very kind and very helpful. I never had any problems with other inmates. I always had problems with staff and guards because of my like status as a political prisoner and status as a terrorist. That made it a little tougher with the guards and the um, administrative staff at these prisons. But prison's very survivable. I had a lot of support. I was getting, you know, multiple pieces of mail a day. I was getting books sent in. I had all the support and I could, you can survive off of, off of vegan food, off of commissary pretty easily in, in prison. So a lot of the prisoners inside had a lot worse than I did for sure. What kind of food were you eating? Um, mostly like oatmeal, peanut butter. It's a pretty bland diet, but it's doable as a vegan. You went on hunger strike too at some points. Sure, yeah, I did a few hunger strikes. Um, staff held my mail for a long time because of my terrorist status. So they would just hold my mail, sort of deny me some of my communications. So I would have to hunger strike to get that and they would immediately capitulate. There were a couple of facilities where I had to hunger strike to get vegan food. That always worked. But, you know, if you see a political prisoner out there and you see a call for a call to action for vegan food or they need calls to the jail for any reason, make those calls because those facilities are scared to death of outside pressure. Wow, definitely. And so you had a friend in prison. His name was Bill. I read about him. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like and what he was in for and that relationship? Sure. He, he's an older political prisoner. He was um, doing like some left-wing militant stuff in the 70s, got captured and is serving a 90-year sentence. But he saw me as a comrade, as a fellow political prisoner, and he would do everything he could to help me out when I was inside. And that friendship made it a lot easier when I was held at Lompoc. I was there for like five months. And uh, yeah, Bill was a very, very good friend, very dear friend. So being that you had this experience in prison, did it ever cross your mind that you regretted any of the actions that you did or no? No, absolutely not. My only regret is that I got caught. Underground action and illegal direct action is often the animal's only hope. So I never regretted for a second saving their lives. What do we need to do in your opinion as a movement? What kinds of direct action should people be doing more of? Where can people start? I think people should look at you know, what their strengths are, you know, if they're, if they're comfortable taking a legal, a legal action, they absolutely should. Like I said, direct action is often the animal's only hope and they're, 
you know, depending on us. Think about what you would want if you were in a cage and um, you were just trapped there. Uh, people should think about strategy. A lot of these pressure campaigns that are happening now with CAF USA against the fur industry, they have a hundred percent success rate right now. So we've taken down Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Oscar de la Renta, Saint Laurent, all these huge fashion giants are capitulating to just consistent and focused, focused activist pressure. So people should look at those campaigns. You know, if they're if they're not willing to do illegal direct action and save animals directly, that's a great way to help animals. Absolutely. And so with all of the activism that you've gotten yourself involved in, how has it affected your relationships with your friends and family? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, I made that decision pretty early on that I was going to do these things and make these sacrifices. It's tough to find to find people that are that are willing to go as far as I will. But, you know, I always have had a good crew of friends and fellow activists, I think. I always say that finding that support system within the animal rights community is so important. It really is everything. Absolutely. What's the scene out there in Texas? We've been working super hard against the against the fur industry. Um, again, those CAF USA campaigns, we went really hard um, on Neiman Marcus. They're headquartered in Dallas, Texas. So we did like 15 or 16 actions against Neiman Marcus and they caved within two months. Everybody thought it was going to be a, year, a years long campaign and they caved within two months. It was it was amazing. We're really focused on LVMH. We're really We're really trying to do everything we can to get LVMH to cave. So you're really seeing the ripple effect of your actions. Even when you liberated the minks and you went to prison for it, they shut down that farm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there was a farm we raided in Colorado. It had never been discovered before, but I found a newspaper article that talked about this California farm and all I had was an address of a neighbor. So I did everything I could scouring, you know, uh, online directories, finding the address to this neighbor. Drove by the farm, identified that it was a mink farm in operation. We opened every single cage in the middle of the night, and that farm closed the very next day. So very, very rewarding. I mean, achieving in one night what, you know, activists work years on. Absolutely. And sometimes that's what it takes. And you describe in some of the pieces that you wrote that it that is what needs to happen. Some At, at this point, it's the animal's only hope. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, Every other social justice movement utilizes a diversity of tactics and utilizes sort of a all hands on board sort of approach. And uh, we need everybody fighting in whatever ways they're comfortable with if we're going to achieve the results we need to achieve, you know, as a social justice movement. How do you stay strong and how do you not burn out? Oh, I mean, I just think of the animal's plight. I think of, you know, what the animals need and want. You know, I take breaks when necessary. Ultimately, it comes down to, to what I would want if I was the one being oppressed. Right. Absolutely. I think that it's super important to take those breaks when needed, but it is so true that every single second of every single day, these animals are being tortured, abused, mutilated, murdered, and they need us. They need us here in the long run. And it's always frustrating to see when drama and the animal rights community sparks and then, you know, people fall off it's very frustrating because at the end of the day, the real victims are the animals and those are the ones we need to be focusing on. Sure. Yeah. We can do a lot of work to put our egos aside and just focus on the animals and, you know, put our differences aside and come together. I think it would go a long way. Absolutely. So I saw a few weeks ago that uh, some lobsters were liberated. Are you able to talk about that? Um, it's not an action I did. It's just an action that I shared. I was very, yeah, I love those sorts of actions. They're, 
sort of low risk level actions that anyone can do. They're sort of easily reproducible. I mean, this was an action where some individuals went into a supermarket and on several different occasions and liberated some, some lobsters and returned them to their natural habitat. Um, I think in the end, 31 lobsters were liberated. So very how beautiful did, action, life-saving. How did they go about reacclimating them? I think they, to, you can't just throw them in the water. You have to sort of like put them at the edge of the water and let them sort of reacclimate to freedom. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's definitely something I would like to do at some point. It's always heartbreaking just to see them in those disgusting tanks, just kind of waiting to be boiled alive. I mean. Absolutely. And that's, that's an action that wouldn't, wouldn't really carry too much risk of repression. You know, they, they caught you, you just get like a petty theft citation or something like that. So again, just a very low risk action and a very reproducible action. Are you staying away from the underground stuff? Are you not allowed to say? Yeah, I mean, once you're once you're sort of captured, once you sort of do time for Animal Liberation Front actions, your days operating underground are over. It would be too, I think, yeah. too um, dangerous for me to continue operating. I'd be a liability to any sort of ALF cell. So mainly just focusing on strategic effective pressure campaigns. Just got done with an activist tour. We went out to the East Coast and visited a ton of LVMH stores protesting and disrupting their businesses. So, you know, Dior, Fendi, Louis Vuitton, all these stores we were visiting. And um, I'm pretty hopeful that LVMH will cave just like Neiman Marcus and Saks Avenue and the others. Absolutely. And once these stores cave and stop selling animal skins and furs, then why would why would the producers have any reason to keep producing, right? If they're not making money. Exactly. Simple supply and demand. If um, the retailers close up shop and stop selling fur, then absolutely the fur farms will be forced into closure. Why don't you tell everybody how they can support you, how they can get in touch with you? Cool. So I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram, Joseph Buttenberg, um, Facebook as well. Instagram.com slash Joseph Buttenberg. I also have a Patreon page that people can help me sustain my activism. That's patreon.com slash Joseph Buttenberg. And I post like a lot of inspiring stories from the animal liberation movement videos and just the history of the animal rights movement, the stuff that really stands out to me as the most effective and the most beautiful actions. Yeah, I think that that's, everybody should go follow you. And it's, it you inspire me to do more and to be more selfless at, for the animals. And, you know, we we all need to be doing more because clearly it, it's not enough. You know, there's so much suffering that's going on in the world. And if we could just do one thing, you know, I, my whole thing is I'm trying all different types of campaigns and actions. We're trying the lingerie protests. We're di- disrupting supermarkets. We're going to vigils and slaughterhouses and trying to rescue where we can. It's, but you just feel so small sometimes, you know. For sure. Yeah. Think about how to leverage your strengths and sort of, um, you know, think about strategy would be my advice to, to activists is, you know, focus and consistency go a long way. Are you doing any talks at colleges? I've done a few. I don't have anything scheduled right now as far as universities. Yeah, because I find your story is so interesting and inspiring. And to even get non-vegans to hear the perspective from a human and, and your experience, I think could be super interesting. So I guess one last question I have for you is, how do you go about healing yourself from some of the suffering that you've seen and some of the experiences that you've had while fighting for the animals? That's a tough one. Yeah, and I'm pretty much haunted by everything that I saw at fur farms. The animals I had to leave behind and the conditions I saw were just so horrific that I'm I'm haunted almost every day by 
by this industry. The most healing thing I can do and the most cathartic thing I can do is continue to fight that industry and continue to to sort of do everything in my power to to act against it. And, and I know that in my lifetime, the fur industry will be destroyed. That keeps you going. Having faith and hope, for sure. Yeah. And to know that there are people underground that are still trying to do direct action like that is inspiring. How do I get involved? <laughs> so so the Animal Liberation Front is not something you can really join. There's no there's no membership. There's no um there's nobody to reach out to and join. You just have to go and commit commit an action, a legal direct action on behalf of animals, and you claim it anonymously. Um, you write a communique to the Animal Liberation Press Office or uh, an offensive animal anonymously from a public computer or encrypted computer. So there's no way to join. You just have to go and commit an action and claim it on behalf of the Animal Liberation Front. I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> but, uh, this was amazing. Thank you for all that you are doing, everything that you've done. It doesn't go unnoticed. And I will definitely be supporting your Patreon. I hope my listeners uh, get on that because we still got a lot of fighting to do. Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you. Um, and guys definitely go check out, uh, Joseph's page. You can follow him, message him on social media and thank you for listening. Let us know how you like this episode. All right. Bye guys.